Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. It's Sunday morning, the 20th of February, and I'm delighted to be joined by Amichai Stein, who is the diplomatic correspondent for Can News, which is the Israel Public Broadcasting Corporation. Amichai, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Good morning. Thanks for, jo- for having me in. It's, uh, it's, great to, it's great to have you with us. So I think we should start with kind of the biggest diplomatic story in the world, really, which is obviously the, uh, the conflict, the uh, amassing conflict on the Ukrainian-Russian border. And I suppose the question that everyone is asking, um, certainly after we heard Prime Minister Johnson's comments yesterday, you know, from your perspective, how do you see this playing out? You know, a journalist shouldn't bet, but all signs show that there will be something on the Ukrainian-Russian border now. No one can predict, I think, how big it will be between one and ten scale. But I think all the signs show us that there will be something because you have these forces staying in place, 150,000 till uh, 180,000 Russian soldiers. You've got all this uh, false flag attacks. You've got all this uh, false media information that the Russians are putting in. You have all the signs that something is going to happen. And uh, the main reason I think that something is going to happen, because at the end, we can't think of something that Putin can get to go back, meaning Zelensky won't announce, we will never ask to be NATO uh, forever. Uh, so, So at the end, there's a question, what might happen that will make Putin go back. And you don't see it at this point, what might happen. So all the signs show that there will be something. How big it will be between the one and 10, that's only Putin's uh, mind knows. So if we can focus for a second kind of on the Israeli perspective, I mean, it seems Israel is making a a careful dance, cognizant that uh, Israeli security officials see Russia as their relatively new neighbor on the, uh, on the northern border with regard to their, their presence in Syria. But on the other side, obviously, Israel's closest allies, the US, UK and the Europeans, um, are there supporting Ukraine. And how would you describe Israel's kind of response to this and their positioning? So Israel is really walking between the drops, meaning they want uh, to somehow hug Ukraine or not uh, get Ukraine too much pissed off of uh, the Israeli silence, because Ukraine expects uh, Israel to talk. And the deputy foreign minister that was here this week invited Lapid to come to Kiev and show his support to Ukraine. But uh, on the other part, you know, Israel, like you said, is um, Russia's neighbor right now, because Russia is in Syria. Uh, Israel needs Russia uh, when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Iran when it comes to other issues. So Israel is not hugging Ukraine too much, or let's say practically even not hugging her at all. But the question will be not what's going on now. Uh, the question will be, will be what will happen when the war starts, because then the Americans might um, demand Israel and let's say put a fist on the table saying, you need to say something on the Russian aggression. And then it will be the problem that Israel will face. Uh, I don't know how will Israel face it. I know there's debates and uh, discussions amongst officials. How should we uh, proceed the moment war starts? But at the end, I think the assumption here that the American will demand 
some kind of Israeli comment against Russian aggression. How will Israel deal with it? This is a great question because Appleton now, they manage to, to again, walk between the drops. And um, although the Ukrainian um, summoned their ambassador, Israeli ambassadors in Kiev after Israeli officials spoke with Russians. So, so there is a tense feeling, but I think the big question is what will happen on the day <laughs> that Russian troops march in and um, then Israeli probably will need to issue some kind of condemnation of Russian aggression. How exactly will it be? What will be the language? This I think we will know only when the tanks start rolling in. That's interesting because there is a kind of a, a, a sense here, perhaps maybe misplaced and optimistic, that, um, that the US understands Israel's predicament vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia. You, you think that they, the Americans would bang on the table and insist on, a, on an Israeli statement. What, what does that do? Why, why, why is an Israeli statement important here? An Israeli statement is not the most important <laughs> among Western countries. You know, at the end, Israel is not sending tanks or equipment right. to Ukraine. But um, at the end, when the US fights another side, let's look at the Chinese story. The US expects Israel always to uh, be on its side when it comes to um, the conflict with China, when it comes to Chinese investments in Israel, when it comes to sometimes to human rights issues related to China, you saw Israel even once issuing a statement of condemnation of the Chinese government. So the US, when it comes to its conflict with another country, expects Israel to be on her side. So it's not important, but again, when you start some kind of war like this and you put the line bad guys good guys the u.s expect you to be on your side on the good guy side and they expect some kind of statement again i don't know what the language will be and i know up until now when uh, let's say israeli officials had meetings with their baltic officials they use some kind of vague language based on the UN Security Council resolution that even Russia supported about the Ukraine independence. So this was the language up until now Israeli always used when it came to Ukraine. But if a war starts, everything's going to change. If we can move on to the other kind of the, the big diplomatic story that, uh, that it concerns, concerns Israel, though Israel's not at the table, are the talks in, uh, in Vienna around the Iranian uh, nuclear program. First of all, I mean, how close do you think we are to a deal? It's not a question how close they are. It's the question what the Iranians say, because everything's on the table. We know there's a 20 pages draft. We know what it includes. We know it's based on the mostly on the old JCPOA agreement from 2015. All the West and China and Russia agree on this draft. The question is what the Iranians are going to say. So. The expectation that at some point they will understand that they cannot squeeze any more demands, although they do want, but the assumption is that they will understand that and say the yes. And that is agreement. There is no need for more discussions or more debates or more time. At the end, everyone's waiting for Iranians to say yes, yes, but, or no. And the assumption is that the, at one point the yes will arrive, but, at the end, it's the Iranians. They're full of surprises. Um, we don't know why up until now they said no. <laughs> so uh, mm. at the end, it all depends on the Iranians and the assumptions 
here and in the West that the Iranian will say yes. But like I said, at the end of the end, you cannot expect completely what the Iranians will do at this point. I mean, it's fascinating that kind of a, that uh, the US and Russia are effectively on the same side negotiating opposite the Iranians. Um, and whilst they're obviously we discussed the conflict in Ukraine, how can the Americans and the US, um, sorry, the US and Russia compartmentalize this and still be partners in the Vienna process? I'll tell you a very interesting story. I talked with a Western diplomat a few days ago, and he told me it was very surprising to him. He thought that the Russian-Ukrainian conflict will influence the talks, meaning the Russians won't have such a big interest to pressure on the Iranians to close things. He said, I thought that, um, you know, the Russian would want another, uh, let's say, conflict for the U.S., so the Russian will have interests uh, for the talks to drag on and on and on. But in the end, surprisingly, the Russians in recent days are really pressuring the Iranians to sign this deal, meaning to take what's on the table and sign it and not to drag it on and on. But um, the story of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict might not influence Russia, but affect Iran because if the war starts in the coming days, the Iranians might feel that they have a chance maybe to get more for the Americans. Uh, they will say maybe the U.S. has this conflict or not so much in just Vienna talks. Let's try and pressure them. Let's try and get more. Uh, so this is the point that people say the war in Ukraine might influence the talks because, again, at this point, the Russians are pressuring Iran to side. They're not looking to drag this thing over and over. Interesting. Um, we also saw at the end of last week that uh, senior Israeli diplomats uh, visited Vienna um, for consultations with some of the uh, some of the uh, partners. Uh, what can you tell us about those meetings? Mainly that the Israeli stance in, has been in recent weeks with all conversation with uh, Western diplomats and officials or people involved in this Vienna talks that Israel um, says, uh, don't go for this deal, meaning don't sign it. Um, there, in the past, you know, Israeli officials said, we're trying to get this deal uh, better or put more things or longer and stronger. And in the last month or two, Israeli officials understood they, they can't change the deal itself. And they are telling everyone they're speaking with, don't sign the deal. And the reason Israelis are saying don't sign the deal is because the assumption in Israel that, um, first of all, if there's a deal, uh, Iran might get uh, bigger insurance from the West, meaning it will be harder for Israel uh, maybe to strike uh, targets uh, related to the nuclear problem, uh, program. Sorry. Another issue is that, you know, Israeli officials say you're leaving the program as it is right now, leaving the Iranians maybe five months, maybe six months, six months from acquiring enough material for a nuclear bomb. And at the end, you're removing all sanctions. So Iran is getting everything um, in a much worse deal than that in 2015, because the deal back then put Iran one year from a bomb, and now it's only five or six months. And the last thing Israeli officials tell their colleagues, listen, at the end, if there's no deal, Iran stays the same. She's weaker because there are sanctions. And it opens a possibility that in several months, 
you might be able to maybe do a different deal or a better deal, something much more uh, that can constrain the nuclear program. So these are the reasons that the Israeli officials are telling their colleagues, don't sign the deal. Let's say, let's talk specifically about this delegation. It's very rare that Israeli officials come to Vienna, come to Vienna publicly while these talks are being handled. And a meeting with Gorossi is something I don't remember for at least several years that mm-hmm. in this way, this public way. And uh, when Iranians attacked this, the, the Israeli delegations in Israel, they were very pleased because they said the Iranian have a reason why they that why they are attacking us because they are feeling very uh, that the, that Israeli statements are falling, you know, on the ears of the West. But at the end, I must tell you the truth, I'm not so much sure that um, this statement from Israel don't sign the deal was really accepted uh, by the West because at the end, everyone there wants a deal. They are just waiting for Iranians to say yes. I mean, if we can turn our attention kind of in parallel to that process, Israel's making incredible uh, um, strides towards kind of their, their regional alliances. The most latest display of that was uh, Prime Minister Bennett's um, trip to Bahrain um, last week. Um, what do you think were the most important uh, outcomes of that trip? The most important outcome from Israel is to show that we are not alone uh, in our um, opposition to the uh, Vienna Accords or Iran. This is something very important for Israel to show we're not fighting this alone, we're not by ourselves. And take uh, the Bahrain visit, you know, in, from Bahrain, uh, Prime Minister Bennett could see Iran. So it's very important for him to show that um, even in these tense times at the end, countries that are inviting Israeli officials, that um, we are getting close with our Gulf neighbors, and the Iranian threat in the end is, is, is a common goal of the Middle East. Add to this the, what we have seen recently in the UAE, these drones attacks by the Houthi rebels, which are supported by Iran. And from Israel's point of view, at least uh, we're getting some kind of alliance against Iran that Israel really wants to show. But at the end, Bennett didn't get any public statement from the Bahrainians against the Iran deal or the Vienna Accords, or against Iran itself. Uh, the visit itself was the Bahrainian way to show, um, to poke in the eye of the Iranians. But at the end, you didn't get any public statement. And also from the UAE, even after these attacks, you don't get a statement, you don't get statements against Iran. So on the one half, Israel is creating some kind of reliance, but at the end, they are not getting the comments they want to hear, from publicly at least, from these countries. I mean, another, I mean, Israel's had a long-standing relationship with Egypt, which has obviously been characterized to a large degree as a cold piece. Um, but last week, we saw amazing scenes at an energy conference um, hosted by Egypt, where President Sisi made a special effort to go over and publicly welcome the Israeli uh, energy minister. How do you explain the kind of the turnaround and the, and, the, and the public display of affection? I think the main reason is, first of all, that the moment you are not the two countries, Egypt and Jordan, who have signed on a peace accord with Israel, and you have in the last year, the last two years, four more countries, um, things look differently. So you're not more, you're not ashamed 
of showing these relations publicly. And remember a very interesting thing at the end, uh, you know, you say, wait, if the UAE can allow anyone to visit and Bahrain allows everyone to visit and Morocco does tourism uh, relations with Israel and economic relations and officials visit, at the end, Egypt and Jordan, first of all, say, okay, maybe we need to do more. And by the way, the other, for example, the UAE are pressuring them to do more for these for the regional peace. And the second thing, I think Israeli officials are starting to demand more from these countries because in the past, you know, Israel agreed that the relations can stay quiet. Um, it can work nicely also behind the scenes. Now I think Israeli officials are a bit demanding more from these countries saying, we want a photo, we want a statement, we want these kinds of words uh, 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 because the Middle East has changed. They're telling them you're not alone in the, the peace with Israel. There are other countries and the story. So I think Israeli officials might be also demanding more on this story. And maybe the rulers themselves in Egypt and Jordan see what's going on in the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and, and are saying to themselves, maybe uh, the process that the public will um, approve of these relations with Israel is the public way, meaning we need to show that the Israeli that Israel is giving something to us. And the moment you, um, for example, with Jordan, sign a water agreement and you made make it public, and with Egypt, uh, there's also some kind of different relations. Uh, you want to show the public different, you know, you want to show the public the outcome and you think maybe this outcome will cause the public to change its opinion regarding these agreements. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Israel-Jordan relations. I understand you, you broke an exclusive story at the end of last week on the latest developments there. Could you just uh, tell our audience what, the, uh, what that development is? So last week, a delegation from Aqaba, which is Jordan um, tourism city, came to Ilat, which is Israel tourism city, for a, a really interesting summit. They're looking for cooperation between the cities. What's interesting that, again, in the story, there was some kind of statement at the end, but there was no picture. Uh, the only picture with, which was issued was a vague uh, Israel and Jordan flags, and in the background you could see people. But again, we talked about the relations and how things are playing a bit more publicly, but like you see, there's uh, a red line because you didn't see pictures of the people who participated, although we know who participated. We know that the Aqaba governor participated. Uh, we know that other businessmen from Jordan participated. But it was very interesting, first of all, the decision to do some kind of summit on behalf of the Jordanians, uh, a thing which was, I think, a long time ago didn't happen. Uh, but the second thing, like I said in the past, that um, at the end there's still this red line that yes, you can report about it. Yes, you can issue a vague picture, but you can't show our faces. Uh, it's a problem for us to be uh, with Israelis uh, because of our public. And what was very interesting, by the way, another thing that there was no Jordanian statement issue on this, meaning only Israelis issue a statement, uh, but no, uh, but no statement from Jordan. 
Mm. I mean, just a final question, perhaps something I've asked other other podcast guests. How do you see the future developments? And again, I know you're a journalist, loath to make predictions. But if I if I ask you anyway, kind of the the future expansion of the Abraham Accords, what's your uh, what's your assessment? Who could be next, and what's the time frame? I think it really depends on the question: How much will the Americans agree to go in and give? Uh, because we saw at the end this this what brought Abraham Accords to life. It was a Trump administration willing to give a lot of presents, for example, the F-35 and the Western Sahara to Morocco. So, so at the end, you need some kind of something to move things on at the end. You know, relations with Israel is good. Everyone is doing them behind the scenes. But at the end, uh, I think you need something for the Biden administration to move things on and someone and several people told me that um maybe wait one or two you know we're expecting things to happen now but some someone told me listen wait one year or two years wait to see uh, people waiting to see how these deals that you have signed on will go and if they're going well and good and the public uh, is accepting them and really things change on the ground other countries might come even if there is no American presence in the story. I think the U.S. presence might make it faster, but at the end, uh, people tell me that maybe in one or two years when people see that things, you know, really uh, have worked and the public is expecting, uh, uh, and the public is really accepting these agreements, uh, countries will come um, by themselves and won't need any American pressure or something like this. Well, we will wait and, uh, and, and watch with eager anticipation. I'm Michai, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me.